This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 210 brought to you in association with Smart and the EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Odin Eweniyi, co-founder at Piggyvest, to talk about fintech savings and investment in Africa's biggest market, Nigeria. Piggyvest is West Africa's first digital savings and micro-investment app, with over 3.8 million users since launching in 2016. In 2021 alone, the platform paid out over $582 million to its users. Piggyvest's growth is even more remarkable when you consider that its last fundraise was four years ago at a mere million bucks seed round. We've got an upcoming episode on fintech in Africa qua continent soon, and not to spoil that one, but Africa is not, despite what all the racist wokesters might have you think all one place comprised of all one type of person. Far from it in Africa, there are over 50 different countries, countless peoples, and a billion population as a whole. So between Africa, China and India, you've got roughly half the world. However, before diving into a geography lesson, suffice it to say that Nigeria within Africa is by far the largest by population, having over 200 million people. Only Ethiopia and Egypt managed to get above the 100 million mark. So the three together make about a third of the continent. So there's a lot to cover and maybe we'll also find out why Piggyvest is called Piggyvest, not Piggy Bank. Long-term listeners will know that I know next to nothing about anything. But for sure, I thought West Africa was way too hot for vests. Indeed, I thought vests went out of fashion even here in the UK, ever since central heating came in and we gave up covering our faces in woad. Mind you, talking of wokesters, I think I preferred wearing woad and having no central heating to the current insanities besetting Europe. Anyway, less of that and what better time to take a trip far further south. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Odin. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. So, as I said in the introduction, there are probably some people out there, perhaps in America, who think that Africa is one place, which it isn't. It's a huge continent. But in particular, there will be uh, probably, we're in Canary Wharf at the moment, probably most of the people on this building will know that Nigeria is in West Africa. Though whether 100% of them can actually put their finger on the right sort of little bit uh, of West Africa, um, I don't know. And as long-term listeners know, I know next to nothing about anything. And what I know about Nigeria, I don't need the back of an envelope to write on, because actually it could be fitted onto the back of a postage, postage <laughs> stamp. So I thought maybe you could uh, tell the listeners a little bit about Nigeria. Plenty. Most of my listeners will know far more than me. The little bit I know is that there are three main linguistic groups or people groups. Off the top of my head, Yoruba bottom left, that's a geographical term, Ibo, bottom right, and up towards the top, Hausa, and roughly speaking, Christian at the bottom and Muslim in the north, and uh, at which point I don't need a second postage stamp, because that's about all I know. So <laughs> maybe you could tell the listeners that firstly, what I wrote on the postage stamp wasn't worth writing, because that's wrong, and then secondly, uh, go beyond one postage stamp and write on the back of an envelope for them. Uh, so and I think like a lot of what you've said is already correct. Nigeria has three major languages and two major religions, but... Outside of that, we have almost 180 languages actually spoken in Nigeria. 
So beyond Yoruba, Igbo, Hausa, there's several other like smaller tribes, several with their own languages and their own affectations. So it's a very big melting pot of like people, but somehow managed to be mostly homogeneous. So um, you have Yoruba people living in the east, you have Eastern people living in like the southwest, you have Yoruba people living in the north, and so. Generally, there's a lot of like moving around, right? Most people, like, is in all parts of the world, will probably never leave their local geography. But enough people move around to make it like a healthy mix of people. And for religion, it's pretty much the same thing. Christian, Muslim is probably two major ones. But I'm sure that we have several others. There's traditional worshippers there and other religions that I probably don't have insight into, but they exist. And in terms of the small groups, is there a tendency for these small groups and the languages to be dying out, which there is in quite a lot of the world? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think so. Even for the larger languages like Yoruba, Ivo, Hausa, as you kind of move through generations, less and less people speak it. And then you have that, like, you run that risk. And so I think most tribes are, like, doing their best. They, like, for instance, people who speak a different language will get, like, super annoyed if you call what they speak Yoruba if it was, like, if they were from the southwest. So everyone's trying to do as much preservation as they can, but I think that evolution finally comes for us all. Yes, sadly, and makes everything the same, but I, I hope that will be reversed and we'll get more localism and local cultures going forward when the American empire inevitably collapses. <laughs> and the other thing, Nigeria is the world's sixth largest country per se, and it's also the world's third largest speaker of English. I didn't actually bother to look that one up. I assume it could be India at the top and then America and then Nigeria. Well, you know, this is all a case for countries to get us stopped right now, LTS. We actually do speak English a lot in Nigeria, uh, probably the la like sixth largest company country because we're like many people. What percentage of Nigerians learn English at, at school or whatever? Then All schools teach in English. Okay. Right. Yeah, all schools teach in English. So it's kind of like the lingua franca, so the national language, which is like the most homogeneous one spoken. So if you're attending school, you're learning in English for the most part. And one of the other things we were talking about before, which I was interested in, was having said that Africa has perhaps got more fractal complexity than most places on the map, which is you zoom in and you zoom in and you zoom in and you just say well, there are countless tribes below the, the ma major three. And also talking about localism, centrifugal force keeping things apart versus centripetal force pulling it all together. Would you say the majority of the major uh, three groups marry within their group? Yes majority do marry within their groups. I think it's just a function of the people you are around for the most part. So if you live in Ogun State all your life, the odds are you'll marry like a Yoruba person. Ogun State is a state in the southwest which is like majority Yoruba. But if you live in Lagos, for instance, Lagos is one of like the big like commercial cities in Nigeria, you're then more likely to be exposed to the other tribes. So in that way, people in Lagos will probably like cross-marry better than people who live like in the cities that aren't as like diverse, so to speak. That makes sense. And I don't know whether I've told this story on the podcast before, but way back in the day, in about 2014, I was going in to do a, one of my first few podcasts with a FX business founded by a Nigerian guy. He wasn't the guest. His COO was the chap that I knew. 
uh, and at the time anybody who would uh, clip a microphone onto them I would interview. And it was a memorable uh, day, I think I've mentioned this bit before, which is that on the train uh, going into London, the chap who was next to me, who I thought, thought was drunk and asleep, turned out to be sort of uh, slightly worse than, than drunk and asleep and uh, he flopped onto me and started dying and then literally died at my feet while people were giving him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, which wasn't the ideal start to the day. Anyway, then the sort of uh, bus replacement service came and, and took us a bit into London and I got chatting to a, a lovely Nigerian lady. She was sort of a, a grandmothery type and actually she was telling me about the, uh, the three major tribes and the languages and some of the political background and just as I was getting off the bus she said do you want some advice about Nigerians? I said well why not you know I, I might need it one day. She said never trust a Nigerian <laughs> and at that point I, I got off the bus because my next question would have been but hang on if you're a Nigerian I shouldn't trust you to tell me this. <laughs> yeah we get a bad rap. I think that like I don't know why we do. I think Nigerians are very trustworthy and very hardworking too. I've done a fair bit of travel and there is like a spirit that Nigerians embody that you don't find anywhere else and we call it hustle. The average Nigerian is always moving, always moving, always like finding the next ambition. And so for all like the you know, negative connotations that like we seem to carry around like baggage, I would trust a Nigerian over probably anyone else. Yeah, well, obviously she'd had a, a bad experience. And <laughs> going back to the early days of what fintech, before I knew what word fintech existed, I went through a period of time of getting lots of emails where I'd sort of won the Nigerian lottery or I had a long lost relative who wanted all to give us, me some money. All <laughs> <of us. laughs> but yeah, no, still super hardworking, probably some of the best people you ever come across. And wicked sense of humor, always. I noticed that one the other week, by complete chance, I happened to speak to three Nigerians online. And at the end of the week, I was just chatting to um, Bridget and, and saying that after several days, I'd realized that there was something different about these three people. And it wasn't that they were, they were Nigerians. And I, I said, I think it was about the Sunday, several days later, I thought, I said to Bridget, I said, there's something really strange about those three people. She said, what was that? I said, they were all really jolly. <laughs> and I absolutely meant it. Actually, a couple of them tend to turn out to be your friends anyway, so maybe it's just <laughs> you and your friends that are, are really jolly. But yes, you're all really sort of just jolly and natural and, and normal in a way that Europe's not. I mean, Europe's sort of, you know, its, its leaders seem to be sort of cutting its throat and suicide and people will die of cold in the winter and terrible things like that are going on. Whereas I assume that Africa is uh, on the up and whether it's just being Nigerian or not being from Europe or America, you guys can still just be normal and happy and things like that. I think like Nigerians are happy in spite of everything else. We have, we're not without our challenges and there are a lot, but what we found is whatever's going on, the Nigerian sense of humor always remains intact. So we can always find a laugh. <laughs> and so it always helps. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were talking about this beforehand, and that the British used to be like that. But these days, if you tell a joke, you've offended somebody. So no, nobody tells any jokes anymore, which is a, a bit unfortunate, unless you're in private, actually. Uh, we get together and we all privately tell a joke, you know, having checked that there's no listening devices in the, in the room. So interesting stuff. And in terms of your career journey, Odin, in terms of how you got here today, what led you into finteching and savings and investment? Did you suddenly wake up one morning and go, I'm going to go into fintech? So I graduated from university in 2013 and almost immediately started a company with my friends. So you were an entrepreneur from the beginning? Yeah, from the beginning. And so we worked on a bunch of projects between 2013 and 2015. And one day on December 31st, 2015, we were all, it was like New Year's Eve. Everyone was just relaxing at home using Twitter and just, you know, generally being a nuisance on social media. And there was a lady who 
had broken a wooden box, an actual piggy bank that she'd saved in. So she'd saved a thousand naira every day for the entire year. In dollars, it would be two dollars. And in pounds, it would be one and a half pounds. But every day she'd save that. And at the end of the year, she broke it. She took a photo, she put it on Twitter, and it just went viral. And everyone was talking about it. Oh, I too want to save. Oh, I too want a wooden box. And my co-founder, his name's Josh, he brought that tweet to our group chat and kind of started a conversation around what if we could build a digital wooden box? What would it look like, right? How can we make it more sustainable? And we went back and forth. Some of this conversation is actually still hosted on Twitter. And we decided, well, we can try it out. We'd been trying a bunch of things before, so why not? So two weeks after that, it was like middle, middle of January 2016, we had like an MVP that was called piggybank.ng. And that was kind of how the journey started. Ah, so going back to my incredibly witty and amusing, <laughs> or not, introduction, you actually were called Piggy Bank. So I'm really looking forward to where the vest comes in then. Sure. So we started Piggy Bank and we didn't have any money. So it was obviously like, how do we get this? It was an empty Piggy Bank. <laughs> exactly. How do we get this in front of people? So Joshua started to go back to meet each of the people who was retailing actual wooden boxes to get them to get onto the platform. And that started to help. And then we kind of went back to Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to start marketing it and showing it to people. And that's kind of how we got our start. Wow, brilliant. That's an amazing story. So you're definitely one of these founders in fintech who come with the benefit of not knowing financial services from the inside in the first place. Yes. So you can literally approach it completely different from a different perspective, which is, Absolutely. hey, there's a wooden wooden box. Maybe we can do wooden boxes on an app. Yeah. And then you gradually learn all the sort of boring stuff about FS later, but you've got a fresh concept. And as I mentioned, it actually should have been the other way around in terms of doing fintech in Africa first and, and covering it. But obviously, Africa has been a, a ginormous factor in fintech per se, in terms of mobile money and payments yeah. and uh, all that kind of thing, well before uh, other countries. And as I recall, one of the issues there, which was generalizing about Africa or rather whichever countries it was, I've forgotten where the thingamajig started. So there's Flutterway, which is probably the like, largest unicorn in Nigeria right now. Uh, there's Paystack, which was acquired by Stripe. Um, there's Interswitch. Yeah, I was thinking the one that was more in sort of East Africa. Oh, Safaricom, M-Pesa. M-Pesa, that's the one. Yeah, that's oh, dear me. Yeah, I mean, my brain's not used to this rain. It's been raining today, and I think it's, uh, <laughs> it's leaking. Yes, in pace. How could I possibly forget that? Uh, I forget my own, own name soon. So Africa has been a huge thing. And one of the things, certainly behind uh, in pace, as far as I recall, was that, unsurprisingly, there are many countries in Africa where people trust the banks even less than they do over here. So before we dive into the sort of fintech bit and the piggy vesting a little bit more, what's the sort of thumbnail sketch about Nigerian banks? Does the average Nigerian completely trust its banks, or do the banks have good relationships with politicians? and keep going bust or something in the middle? Uh, so, yeah, something in the middle, actually. So, and I'll start, like, from 2016, which is when we started to pay, like, proper attention to the ecosystem. So in 2016, we had, I think, 22 banks in Nigeria. But, like, the processes across all the banks were exactly the same, right? You open an account, you get, like, an ATM card, a withdrawal sleep. You know, every time you get an alert, you pay for the SMS that's been sent to you. Every time you use the ATM, you pay charges. Every time you transfer money between you and a friend, you pay money. Every time you try to open an account, you have to physically go into the bank and fill in all of that paperwork. So it's old-fashioned and expensive. Exactly. So it was clunky. You know, if you went to the ATM and tried to withdraw and somehow you got debited and the funds didn't come out, physical visit. You want to change something, physical visit. Which, in context, when I started in the city, the 80s, a long time ago, 
I had to do that at lunchtime. I'd have a check, I would have to go, and I would have to queue at a bank, so, you know. But, so in 2016, it just was like, it wasn't working for our generation. Younger people don't want that. Like, we now have smartphones in our hands. How is it that we have to keep moving back? So there was all of that process, like, the process just wasn't proper. And then there was the accessibility end of it, where banks simply weren't giving loans to individuals, right? As a young person, you couldn't access a loan. That was just it. And then when you looked at how like Nigeria sets up, we don't have a credit system. So you know, here you have a credit card. You can put things on your credit card, pay at payday. If you want to rent an apartment, you, know, you get your deposit and your first month's rent, and off you go. In Nigeria, we do payments in cash, in bulk, and upfront. So you want to rent a house, you pay a year or two years in advance. Oh, wow. You want to buy a car, all of your money. School, same thing, right? So for us, it was just kind of difficult as a younger person who's earning. So for context, if you're renting a one-bedroom apartment, say, in a central place in Lagos, say, I'll say Yaba, Yaba's super central tech hub, a one-bedroom goes anywhere from 400000 600000 so almost um, $1,000, actually. So you're thinking somewhere around that. But your salary every month is almost on average around $250, $300, maybe $400. So essentially, we are telling people to rent an apartment, you need at least three uninterrupted months rent. To buy a car, same thing, you have to save up. But when you save up in a bank, all of those charges mean that sometimes you end up with less based on like all of those money movements. And the interest rate that you're being offered is far, far, far lower than inflation rates. So you are losing. And if you said, okay, Banking's fine. I'll go to investment and asset managers. The minimum investment ticket size in 2016 was a millionaire. A millionaire is around $2,000. So if you have $400 per month, that means you have to save for five months before you can invest to get the lowest tier of interest. It just wasn't working in a democratized fashion. And that's what we started to kind of think about when we got the idea. So the idea was basic. A piggy bank that you can have on the internet, you know, you save, you know, 100 naira, which is, I think, 20 cents every day, a thousand naira, which is, I think, $2, and then you go from there. And then we're debiting your account and helping you stockpile cash. And then we started to think of what can we give you for stockpiling that cash, right? So we started to work with asset managers, pull the funds together, get returns that we then, like, pass on most of it to the users and make sure that you're getting all of the upside on your money. And so that's kind of the history that like led to why Piggy Bank, why Piggy Vest, and why do you need to democratize like financial services for young people is simple because we need to access it and we need to access it in a way that fits our habits and our needs. So we'll come back to demographics and, and, and people and income distributions in a minute, but given my fascination with the, uh, uh, the irrelevant <laughs> rather than the relevant, why did you go from being a bank to a vest? So you started with wooden boxes, so it was like Piggy Bank, and then do people save in their vests? <laughs> I mean, I mean so you don't need vests in West Africa. It's pretty warm. I know yeah. that much. So, you know, we were a piggy bank for a long time. And then in 2018, actually, we raised a seed round. We acquired, like, a microfinance license. And we started to kind of think, what next for the users? And, you know, it was a very valid question at the time because user behavior was also guiding us towards something. If you asked a few of, like, the OGs, people who started with us, um, what do you withdraw for? You'd hear, I'm withdrawing to start a business, I'm withdrawing for school. But you also hear, I'm withdrawing to invest, which was very interesting because we didn't have any investment options. So people were taking out money from the app oh, to go invest. invest somewhere else. Oh, invest. And so when we started to think about, oh, so we have to add investment options onto the app, 
but we need a name that reflects that we're not just for banking and savings. So, and we didn't want to leave Piggy like completely, so we just like removed the bank and replaced it with Vest from Invest. I see, I see, because Piggy Bank Savings and Loan Investment would be too long for, <laughs> for a tweet. Yeah. I see. Okay. So anyway, so in terms of what we've seen in fintech over here and what obviously your journey has involved yourself, which is that there are two kinds of founder. More recently in, in London, as I'm sure you know, because you spent a lot of time here, you were telling me the last couple of years, a lot of founders are coming from within financial services. So they kind of understand what financial services is and all that kind of stuff. Although the earlier founders, a bit like yourself, came from outside. So you have this great idea. You've got this wonderful idea that, hey, I've got a phone. I can do this on my phone. Why can't I do that on the phone? How hard can it be? And then you've got this sort of slightly old-fashioned banking system that's a bit clunky and a bit expensive. So what was the journey like when you had your nice shiny app replacing people's wooden boxes and you go, oh, shit, I've got to connect into the banking system. That costs a bloody fortune and it takes forever. I mean, the, you know, it's like, which is like you've got a Ferrari and you go, you do 99 miles at sort of 300 miles an hour. And then the last mile you've got to walk up or got a bicycle or something. Yeah. I mean, um, at the beginning, it was really tough because it, we did, again, not a lot of resources. So we had to rely heavily on like direct sales to people to use the app and then heavily on partnerships. So by training myself and my co-founders are engineers. So we approached it very methodically, right? We're like, we're not bankers, so we didn't have like the benefit or the hindrance of the knowledge of financial services. We just wanted to make an efficient, effective system. And so that helped where we were just very aware, this is what we have, this is what we need, this is what we need to get. And so a lot of it was conversations and partnerships. And we had an investor who'd been working with us on other projects in 2014, who was very instrumental in talking to the people we needed to be in the same room with, right? So you need a banking partner, he'd organize a meeting, okay, have a conversation with them. We needed like a payment processor, like, oh, these people are building something very interesting, you should have a meeting. So there was, at the beginning, and actually till now, a lot in terms of having to partner with people and rely on their infrastructure until we're able to afford to build our own. And in that first year, we got maybe 700 users, and it was painstaking 700 One people. by one. Yeah, one by one. one 536, <laughs> 537, 535. Yes. Shit, two left yesterday. Yes. 536, 537. Exactly. Like, it was people you, like, you know, it was very hard-won victories, but yeah. we got that because, like, we had all of those conversations were going on, and then we had, like, a support system in that investor who'd go out and essentially advocate for us. And then we had those partners. I see. And so talking about the early days, in terms of there's an app on your phone, you can put money in it. Like the rest of financial services, um, although the rest of financial services, not the rest of it, the banks tend to be backed by the, the central bank to a certain extent. That obviously involves a lot of trust. So uh, in the early days, when you've got this great idea that actually your phone might be more convenient for the millennials than a, a wooden box in your pocket, because wooden boxes didn't fit very easily in your pocket. Yeah. So you've got this great idea, but then how on earth in the early days do you bootstrap yourself through the trust factor so that somebody who's never heard of you or Piggy Vest goes, hey, they sound brilliant, I really trust them, I'll put my money in it. And because obviously the lady that I spoke to in, in London <laughs> didn't. <laughs> so trust is, you're right, Nigeria is a super low trust society because financial services are, and at the time in 2016, smartphone penetration was obviously worse than it was now. So like, there, was people, there are people who use ATM cards today who in 2016 refused to get ATM cards for their accounts. So we had to build literally brick by brick the trust like, for our users. 
right? So it was by creating, okay, so this is who we are. This is what we're trying to do. These are our partners. And more importantly, these are our founders. And that's why till today, we have to maintain a very human-like face for PiggyVest, right? People are super aware who Odun is, who Josh is, and who Somto is. And that's helped us. We have great intentions, right? But like, you know, typically the road to hell is paved with all of that. Exactly. So every time we held ourselves super accountable to the promises that we were making to the users. So building trust was super essential. Josh is a really great people person. So Josh handled marketing and customer service. And one of the things that sounds very cliche, but that we like really emphasize and reemphasize was customer service. We didn't over promise ever. And so we didn't under-deliver because we were promising exactly what we could offer. But the second thing was making sure, one after the other, that each person was getting a good experience on the platform. If you didn't, we would chase you down and make sure that we solved your problem end to end. And it was very guided by that. And so when we started to hire, it was also that kind of culture that we're passing down. And so the trust is super hard one. But now if you went on Twitter and said, oh, I have a problem with my PiggyVest account, there's a user who's ready to jump on and tell you, no, just send an email. They'll fix it for you. And that's only a function of the experience that we've given to them. I don't have any scientific like method of this is what we did. It was just we're going to sit down and make sure that each person who uses it feels like a member of a community that's seen, who's super valuable, whose money that's been saved, whether it's 100 naira a day or 5,000 a month, means something to this company. And so that's how we're able to build it. Oh, interesting, creating trust in the sort of low trust environment. And I was thinking about that while you were talking. And as I say, we're in Canary Wharf here, not far from the, the FCA in, in all of its grandeur. And Britain used to be, back in the day, a high trust society and pretty unregulated. So Paul Tucker, former de- deputy governor of the Bank of England, was on the show and he was saying in the 1970s, the Bank of England had no role at all in regulating UK banks amazing, amazingly, or, or there was no regulation or something like that. And now trust kind of becomes a bit of an irrelevance because everything is, is, is macro and micro and MIDI regulated over here. The sort of just regulation has just taken over uh, almost everything you can possibly do after you've gone out of bed and made yourself a cup of tea in, uh, in the morning. So regulation and control of individuals and control of businesses is a trend which is getting carried away everywhere. How does does regulation of financial services and, and fintechs work in Nigeria? Is there the equivalent these days, or, or was there in the beginning, or did, did one crop up that you've got to go along, knock on some door and say, oh, please, sir, can we carry on doing what we've been doing really well because you're the regulator and we need your approval? Yeah, that's probably the most interesting part of the journey because, you know, when you start a company, you're very bright-eyed. Sounds like a marriage, actually. That's a different, <laughs> different podcast entirely. <laughs> you're like, yeah, you know, we're going to do this. And then you start and then you realize, oh, there is so many layers to it. And so that's kind of what happened with us. We're like, we're going to start, we're going to do this. And then they're like, oh, hello, we're here. And so you begin your like, journey into like, the world of regulation and you learn about the Central Bank of Nigeria, which regulates deposit-taking institutions. And then you learn about Securities and Exchange Commission, which regulates investments. And you learn about like, you know, the Moneylenders Authority. So there, there is a fairly substantive regulatory universe in Nigeria whose approval you need to actually operate as a fintech company. In 2016, regulation wasn't as clear for fintech companies. But as of 2022, I think we've made a vast amount of progress in just kind of like the clarity on I'm starting a fintech company to which regulatory umbrella do I belong? So you have that kind of, yeah, you have that. You have people who write you like the scariest letters if you so much as step out of line. 
And I think as an entrepreneur, um, I'm always so like, ah, so much regulation. But from a citizen perspective, you understand that it's about like preservation of wealth for the people. And in a low-trust society, more than anything, you need that regulation. Yes. And the question for every country around the world is achieving a balance between enough regulation that's good enough to do the job and not too much and bureaucracies are getting carried away. And as I've said on the podcast before, for me, the only uh, good regulation in the world is the regulation of aircraft, because over time, aircraft have got safer and safer, far yeah. fewer drop out of the skies. But if you took a financial services regulator, uh, certainly from Europe, I don't know about um, the West African regulators, and you got them to regulate the airlines, every time a wing fell off, it'd say you need some iron girders down there. They would regulate the plane so much, it would be so heavy, you can't actually take, <laughs> take off. And the similar thing happened not metaphorically speaking, with the peer-to-peers here, where they became regulated by the FCA and about 100 disappeared. And, yeah. and now, now next to nobody can do it because the regulation is so high that a founder like you, if you were starting up in London today, you'd look at the 5 million pages of regulation and go, oh, fuck it, I just, you know, I'll go and do something else. You know. <laughs> so you're right that there needs to be a balance. Innovation will always be ahead of regulation. And in catching up, sometimes like regulators do try to overshoot. But I'm an advocate for conversation. I've, like It's worked for me so far, where it's just, can I sit down and kind of explain our perspective? And I'll hear yours, and we'll find a midpoint. Because one of the interesting things about working in fintech is regulators think, oh, fintech companies want to just do whatever they like. right? I happen to know, or at least I can speak for myself and a bunch of the fintech founders that I work with, we want to be regulated. We want to be able to do the work that we're doing. We're making impact. I want to be able to hear like people on Piggyverse say, oh, I saved for my house, my business. And, but I still want to be within the bounds of the law where there's something that's, because you don't want to like, become a megalomaniac, right? Uh, but so that balance needs to be found. Where in Nigeria, actually, I think we're making good progress. In 2016, I wasn't sitting with any regulators. In 2022, we're having like, regular meetings and updating them. No, this is what we're building. This is how it works. No, we think it might be under this umbrella and not. And just the fact that we're able to have those conversations is emblematic of how far we've come in terms of fintech being accepted. We're not where we need to be, but I think that, like we're in a good place. People are able to launch more comfortably. Yes, I'm generally very critical of the amount of regulation per se, as is Sir Paul Tucker and, and, and Lord Turner when he was on the show as well. <laughs> but for the avoidance of doubt, I'm absolutely not critical of regulators. Having been a head of risk myself back in the day, they have a very asymmetric risk profile, which is if you're a regulator in Nigeria or in London uh, or in Tasmania and you regulate 100 companies, 99 of those do really well and one of them goes bust. At the end of the year, in your review, say, oh, well, the founders, those 99 did really well. And you screwed up on this one. You know, they only ever have downside. They never have upside. Yeah. No one ever pats a regulator on the back saying, you did a fantastic job. Exactly. And the company you're regulating has gone wonderfully. No, any, any goal you let in is a exactly. disaster. It's not like a football match where, yeah, we let two in, but we did score four. Yeah. So we went forward, no, 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 you let, you let two in. So it's a tough job being a regulator. So we started off talking about Nigeria. And we mentioned sort of millennials and tech part of Lagos. And I said we'd come back to the demographics. And I, I suspect that the income distribution curve in Nigeria is probably similar to what it is in America these days, which is <laughs> the Clintons and the Pelosi's uh, and Gates have nicked all the money and the middle class are actually getting crushed over time. Well, that's a, probably a different dynamic. But um, certainly you hear a lot over here about inclusion 
We've got to include people in banks, by which they generally mean in this country, we want the poor people to have bank accounts as well. Well, you know, if they're poor, they've got enough problems as it is, A, without having bank charges added to them, and B, if they're poor, they don't have very much money and they're probably better off in a cash economy. Anyway, but in terms of the marketplace, having said there are 200 million Nigerians, in round numbers. The income distribution of Nigeria has always been a, quite skewed in the north, even when it was the northern protectorate in the late 19th century. It was a very poor area. So I suspect that there aren't 200 million potential customers that you have in, in, in Nigeria, but there are sub-demographics. And I, I suspect that, like increasingly around the world, the, the, kind of, um, the salary distribution curve is kind of exponential. It's pretty flat. Most people make next to nothing, and then a few people make a lot. But how do the demographics actually work in terms of incomes? Right, so we have around 200 million people. According to like, the World Bank, I think at this moment, maybe 47% will live, are living in like, extreme poverty as classified by the World Bank. So that means that they live on like, less than $3 a day. That represents a challenge, because like, when you talk about inclusion, that's what you're talking about. And when you approach it from the point of view of bank accounts, then you're wrong. So for me, financial inclusion is how do you lift those... It's economic inclusion exactly. first and financial inclusion second. Yeah, and then <laughs> it's not just giving them bank apps and bank accounts Correct. and extra charges. So, but we focus on the other 100 million that actually are banked, right? So when you drill it down, we have quite a significant unemployment rate. And so how many people actually have bank accounts, unique bank accounts? In Nigeria, there's around... At this point, I think 49 million unique bank accounts belonging to unique individuals. So for 9 million of that, how many of them will interact with financial services on their smartphones? So when you kind of shake out those figures a little more, you end up with around 26, 27 million people in total that we're first of all primarily like targeting. And then you can really adjust again for age. You know, um, are these people younger? Do they earn income? Um, and then we have around you know, 20 million people. So PGVS primarily targets that 20 million with a view to continue to expand our target as we get more resources and acquire more licenses. For instance, like um, one of our subsidiaries now has acquired a mobile money license, which means that at some point in our journey, we'll be able to serve those people who don't have bank accounts and not have them have to have bank accounts before they can use our product. Okay, so there's about 20 million kind of quotes addressable market. And how far have you got through those 20 million so far? So far, so good. So far, so good. <laughs> yeah, so right now we have, I think, around 4 million people. Well, that's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's a good number. But there's like another like this 16 million to go that we would like to cover. You know, immediate goal is to hit 10 million people in Nigeria that are using the platform to kind of figure out their financials. And then we can now start to look at like what else is out there. And you've explained very clearly how it's all worked, but maybe you guys are also modest as well as having a good sense of humour, insofar as that uh, you've been very modest about the fact that you've built this millions of people using an app, using next to no capital at all. You must have been profitable and bootstrapped yourself with organic cash flow, I assume. Yeah, so in the beginning, we were bootstrapped for 18 months before we even got any cash injection. So we're used to operating super lean. How many staff in the company now? Right now, uh, we have, I think, uh, over 70 people in the mix of full-time, contract, part-time, and all of that. But I think, like, from a fundraising perspective, pre-2020, 2019, there wasn't a lot of capital fundraising attention being paid to Nigeria. And so it was not a question of, I want to start a fintech company, and someone will be like, here's a check, let me see what you can do. It was, I want to start a fintech company, and people are going to be like, yeah, how many users do you have? And so you needed to show traction to get capital. 
And so that's the world that like, we like, came up in 2016. Even, so it's, it evolved very quickly. So 2019 onwards, you start getting people who are getting belief capital to build three years before you couldn't. So the progress is, again, been very exponential. But that's one of the reasons why we had to kind of head down, figure out how to build and how to build it sustainably before going back to the market. I see. And so then just coming on to how you see the future, as you say, roughly speaking, you've got perhaps a quarter of the uh, practical addressable uh, market and you quite like the rest of them. But let's say in, in practice you get to, I don't know, 10 million and that's the sort of the you know, sensible amount. amount. Uh, how do you see the, the future for Piggyvest? I mean, having started off talking about Africa, in terms of expansion, do you sort of think, OK, what's the next biggest market? Oh, that's Ethiopia. Well, we'll head for Ethiopia, which is quite a flight away from Nigeria. <laughs> uh, or going back to Yoruba and, and the group's going over these boundaries, do you think, oh, OK, let's just start going across West Africa country by country and we'll miss that one out, you don't have to mention it, <laughs> which ones, because that's obviously crazy, we won't go there. Do you see it as a geographical expansion? Do you see it as an international expansion, addressing Nigerians abroad? I mean, I happened to see last year, randomly, actually, that the best performing educationally, and I think economically in America, is Nigerians. That's Nigerian very, immigrants into yeah. America are super qualified. I told you, Nigerians are excellent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This lady who said don't trust any of them was obviously <laughs> com- completely, completely wrong. I shouldn't have trusted her say, <laughs> saying that. She probably replied to one of those emails that I never replied to, actually, saying that, because I mean, in her case, she did have long-lost relatives. I thought it was unlikely I had long-lost relatives or forgotten bank accounts. But anyway, so what's the future for Piggyverse? Right, so we have right now, you know, 4 million out of a possible 20 million. And there's still a lot of work to be done in Nigeria, so we're still kind of heads down and building. But when you think about like growth, there's a healthy mix of people from all over Nigeria using Piggyvesh right now. We'll keep that like going. When we start to look at expansion, though, it's for us, what does the data say? Right? So we've seen Nigerian companies expand to Ethiopia, Paga. We've seen Nigerian companies expand to the Philippines. We've seen Nigerian companies expand to Mexico. And then we've seen Nigerian companies go to Ghana, Kenya, and Africa. So we have like a healthy choices in terms of how to like approach expansion. But we've narrowed it down to two, right? A pan-African expansion, which is just kind of like go West Africa, East Africa, North Africa, or emerging markets, where you just kind of look at, okay, Mexico looks great like in terms of like a similar market to Nigeria. How do we go there? That's kind of like the point that we're in right now, figuring out do we go pan-African or do we go emerging markets? Right. There is a school of thought that would argue you should probably go to markets that are similar in behavior to Nigeria specifically to go launch this product there. But there's also a school of thought that would say that like Africa has like there's a homogeneity in terms of the behavior of the people. Perhaps you should look around expanding towards Africa. So in both like uh, from both perspectives, we have target markets. I uh, mentioned Mexico quite a bit. I think it's a very interesting market. But in Africa, there's also kind of a super interesting country that's been coming up a lot, Egypt. So we're thinking around it. We will follow what research and data and numbers say, but it's actually kind of an interesting argument to be had right now. Oh, it's fascinating, the different dimensions. I mean, we did one in Scandinavia earlier this year, and what was said about Scandinavia is that whichever the countries you're in, there are tiny markets. So what happens is you practice, you get it right, and then you immediately have to expand. Yeah. At the opposite extreme, you've got something like, well, China is the opposite extreme. Well, you can the China stay there. is so vast. Yeah. You can stay there for, you can live to 200 years old and you still haven't touched the market. Exactly. So you've got no need to expand. And then uh, some, somewhere in the middle, on a logarithmic scale perhaps, you've got America, which is so big, you grow really big and then you go out and then crush the world, whether you're exactly. Uber or, or something like that. And from that perspective, Britain is somewhat in the middle in that the, the market is actually quite large here. So yes. there's no rush to leave it. Yeah. Um, but equally, well, there's, no, there's no pressure to leave it either. Yeah. And it's a, it's a bit like yourselves, you know, when you've got 200 million, even if the addressable market is, is a fraction of that, there's no rush 
to go anywhere else. There's no rush to run before you can walk. The foundation should be like super solid. Your home market should be properly and well and truly conquered before you try to move out. Excellent. Right. So before I put the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there and my brand partners of the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The unlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. Okay, so Odin, you've mentioned Piggyvest once or twice, and I think the audience got a little bit of interest. In terms of your having an app at the moment, which countries can people be using it? I mean, there's a significant Nigerian community in London, probably in the UK as a whole. Can they use it? Yeah, if you're a Nigerian anywhere and you have what we call a bank verification number, they'll know what I'm talking about. You can use the app. Right, so from anywhere, as long as you have that like identification number, like all Nigerians have it, then you can start using it. It takes three minutes to sign up. And in terms of having grown to a significant size without external capital, you've got, I assume, more artistic license and more artistic freedom to do what you want to do, <laughs> rather than some VCs coming in and putting the thumbscrews on saying, we want you to float the year after next because of something to do with us. And you've grown extremely well and extremely successfully. But if I was your fairy godmother, or if one of the listeners is your fairy godmother, what is it that you would like today or the rest of this year that would make you even bigger and better than you you are today just in case any listener happens to have it well um, one we are actually currently raising a series a so always happy to talk to interested investors if you want to learn about africa or you're actively investing in africa sure happy to chat um, but like second thing would be we're looking at always looking at like instruments funds and bonds and returns to be able to present to our users so always happy to talk to financial services partners. And third, I think general fintech like partners as well. We're not yet hiring outside of Nigeria, but we're happy to talk to people who can enable Nigerians do more with their money from a remittance perspective to being able to like, you know, like send money outside of country or receive money into the country or being able to pay for things. We have kind of a difficulty around that right now. So anything that involves, we can make life easier for the market that you're serving. I'm very, very happy to chat. It's super important to our users. And perhaps sadly for those people who quite like to fly to Nigeria, having heard this show, uh, you're actually in, in London yourself quite a lot, as you were saying. Yes. So in terms of making these connections and all that, you're actually around London to make that happen. Well, it's been a really interesting story as a whole. I think I could now write on two postage stamps my knowledge of Nigeria. So you've doubled my knowledge of Nigeria. <laughs> apart from anything else. And your growth to getting a quarter of an addressable market based on a million dollars is phenomenal. And I wish you and Piggyvest every success in the future. Thank you very much, Mike. This was great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas, via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride
come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so grey Mountains and the trees. Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky. Kiss the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.